Hey, everybody. It is because of our loyal and generous Patreon and PayPal supporters that episodes like this, bonus content like this, can be done. So if you would like to join the ranks of our Patreon and PayPal family, go to dollamore.com slash Patreon or dollamore.com slash PayPal. The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Dalamore. All right, welcome to the program. A very special bonus episode. I doubt it with Dollamore. I am your host, Jesse Dollamore, and sitting across from me, the lovely, the talented, the absolutely scholarly Brittany Page. So, this bonus episode <laughs> is with my thesis advisor. Yeah, it's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and Brittany Page. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So we actually went on location for this one. First time. First time for everything. We went to my university and sat in my thesis advisor's office. And this means that it's going to sound a little different. That's right. Well, and if it's it's a favorite, if it ends up being something that people like, we'll continue to do this. Well, we also didn't have the equipment that we usually have. Right, right, right. And that will be noticed, well, I think. it's just not in studio. Because we had two mics, so me and you were sharing a microphone. Yeah. And then Dr. Navrick had his microphone, and we were not taking that from him. He just had it. <laughs> and so we were sharing one, so that made it difficult to... It, it's just different. You'll, you'll get it. It's not shitty. It's, yeah, just, it's just different. Yeah, it was just difficult to respond to certain things in a way that we normally would because we had to grab the microphone from each other like, and I kind of like what you're doing here though you're you're setting it up to be really fucking terrible okay, I'm not setting it I'm just trying and then to when they hear it they're like oh this isn't so bad well listen because normally when we have a, a show we're able to while someone is talking be like mm-hmm Yes, and indicate right, that right, we're right. still alive, right? Yes, yeah. But there's no, that's not happening in this episode. Right, so, right. And that's because we, we didn't have the equipment we normally yeah. would. Yeah, so it's awesome because Professor Navrick, Dr. Douglas Navrick, is the co-author of your paper that's going to be published in Skeptic, the article in Skeptic. Coming in June. He is also your thesis advisor Yeah. in grad school. So um, he has a prolific history dating back to the 60s, and his education spans upstate New York to Cal State Fullerton, but also um, San Diego State, Mm -hmm. I mean, or uh, UC San Diego, where he worked with pigeons, and what's the phrase that I can't, I can't think of? Operant conditioning. Operant conditioning. Yeah. So explain what that is before we get into the episode. Okay, well, it's basically B.F. Skinner, and people have probably heard of him. That's not a a brand of tires. No, it's not. (laughs) Um, That's a psychologist. So it's a theory of learning and basically behavior change through different types of reinforcement. So positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, schedules of reinforcement, um, reinforcing behavior when you get a desired response. Basically. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Like pigeons pecking on a disc to get food mm-hmm. and then you 
you know, put different colors on the fucking on the on the discs for them to pack. It's counting how many packs. It's all kinds of different variations of that to uh, program a desired effect or just measure the effect based on whatever different the different conditions are. Yeah, so that's where he started. And we actually, we talked for almost two hours. Yeah, it was a long time. And if you look at the time of this episode, it's obviously not two hours. And so the beginning portion of our talk, you won't hear. But we're covering it right now while we're talking about right. this stuff. Um, because that's what the beginning part of the conversation was about. And he went from working with pigeons to now doing a lot of research with moral ambivalence and moral scenarios. And he's really interested in God yeah. and issues relating to religion and uh, objective morality and things like this. Which is where we get to toward the end, right. which is really... It's the meat and potatoes, but it gets set up with the beginning of the interview, which you're going to hear first, which is also super interesting. Yeah. So that's where we're going to go. We're going to leap right into it with him, kind of the, the, the transition of the conversation going from his work with animals to the other kind of animal that's just a little higher on the pecking order, man. <laughs> so without further ado, here you go. So what led you, what was the transition between what you just spoke about to the, the morality and the interest uh, in what you're, what you're kind of hip yeah, deep in yeah. now? Okay. I went through a kind of evolution mm -hmm. and I had this interest even at UC San Diego, which was to apply these experimental techniques that work so well with pigeons uh, to humans. So when I got here, I continued work with, with animal subjects, but I also started dealing with uh, human choice behavior mm -hmm. using operant procedures uh, with a particular focus on uh, an issue that was uh, widely studied with pigeons. And that was on whether subjects made choices that could be called impulsive in nature or whether these choices represented a kind of self-control. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a choice between getting a small amount of reinforcement right away versus a large amount of reinforcement at some later time. Similar to delayed gratification like or delayed like the marshmallow gra test. Right. It, it connects up with a wide range of issues. Mm -hmm. Freud with a, with a pleasure principle yeah. versus reality principle. Uh, if you seek immediate gratification in Freudian theory, you're being impulsive. Yeah. You're controlled by the id. And what does the ego do? The ego specializes in delaying gratification. It works on the reality principle. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, that gives you larger rewards because uh, you can satisfy your impulses in ways that are socially acceptable and also consistent with your moral value. So it's a bigger reward. So this issue is widely connects well with operant issues, amount of reinforcement, delay of reinforcement, but has broader significance. The problem is when you try to set this up with human subjects, it's hard to demonstrate impulsive choices. And that's because 
early on, uh, the kind of reinforcement that researchers used was very different from what's used with pigeons and rats. Usually it was points. So which would you rather have, you know, five points now or 10 points uh, 30 seconds from now? And at the end of the session, you can exchange these points for money. So what's the advantage of taking a few points now rather than a larger number of points later? It's easy to wait. And these points are not equivalent to the, um, the food that rats and pigeons work for. When they receive those reinforcers, they consume them at that time that they're presented. They sure, don't sure. save them up and, and spend it for something. They're, they're intrinsically rewarding, and they have to be used when presented. It's also not like a theoretical value with points. Right. I mean, you're still having to delay gratification. Even if you, you're getting immediate gratification with yeah, the lower number right. of points, you're having to delay it because you're not getting the money until later. Yeah, th there's no real urgency yeah. to it. So what I started working on uh, was f finding reinforcers that were more like food and water. They're, they're referred to as consumable reinforcers that you have to use or interact with when delivered. You can't save them up and exchange them for something else later. And for a number of years, I uh, worked with, a, with different kinds of uh, consumable reinforcers. The most powerful reinforcer the one that I could get a majority of the participants to make impulsive choices for um, on the majority of trials was termination of noise, where they would be wearing headphones. Yeah. And they would be listening to a kind of a whooshing sound, white noise, that um, was adjusted to a level that they reported was uncomfortable but not painful. It had to be adjusted for each subject. So they didn't like it, uh, but they could tolerate it. And if they pressed one disc, they could turn off the noise immediately, but just for five seconds. If they pressed the other disc, uh, they could turn it off for 20 seconds, but they would have to wait. That was one of the variables, how long they would have to wait. So it could be 10 seconds, 20 seconds, uh, 40 seconds. Sure. So... Uh, I kept increasing the wait time for the larger period of relief from the noise until I could find a, a level, a delay, where the majority of the participants would make impulsive choices on the majority of trials. So it, it that gave me the results that were most similar to the rats and the Pigeon. When was this? Because I think the CIA may have been paying attention to your uh, your research uh -huh. because they used this on Noriega oh, to yeah, get Noriega yeah. out of. They were playing Metallica or whatever the music oh, was. That's the time. right, right. Yeah, death metal and heavy hard rock music to get Noriega to come out and give come, him come out up. of his palace. I remember <laughs> that. Right. Yeah. Um, I think, so you're more, more influential than you thought you were. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know if they read it. that article was was published. Negative, negative reinforcement of choice in humans. But I, I didn't want to keep using it. It's just I made the point with it, and, and it just uh, would be too aversive uh, mm -hmm. to ask students to keep doing that. So then I tried out various uh, positive reinforcers. They mm -hmm. they were all weaker in that I, there were individual differences, uh, 
but I couldn't find any combination of a mountain delay reinforcement where I could get the majority to be impulsive on the majority of trials. So things like watching cartoons uh, or other videos or just slides of celebrities. I settled on cartoons. I studied a variety of issues um, with that kind of arrangement using uh, cartoon reinforcement. And then it occurred to me uh, many of these schedules required waiting and were unpleasant procedures. Um, rarely did a student leave. Even though we read them an informed consent statement, you could leave at any time. Mm-hmm. And in a way, they made a choice not to leave. So I started wondering, why don't they leave? <laughs> I mean, I w- they would never come in and do this voluntarily where to, to get the larger reinforcement, they have to wait maybe 30 seconds. And this is in the, I had to make uh, some adjustments to get it, the delay aversive. Mm-hmm. It had to be in the dark. So early on, I found they're using the positive reinforcers. Um, if they waited with the lights on in the room, it's a small room, I'd, you didn't get systematic results. Mm-hmm. But if they waited in the dark, they couldn't stand that. And wow. uh, they would. then I started getting more impulsive choices. Maybe half, 40% to half the subjects would be consistently impulsive, even if I tested them another day. They were reliably across days. But other subjects were consistently showing self-control. I could... Uh, but why did any of them kept participating? They could have left. So I became interested in that angle. Um, the choice to carry out instructions uh, that are unpleasant to carry out when it's, it's not necessary. They could have left at any time. It looked to me like a form of obedience. So I started uh, looking at operant, this operant arrangement as a way of studying obedience. Mm-hmm. And so in 2009, I published an article, uh, Reviving the Milgram Obedience Paradigm in the Era of Informed Consent. It's got quite a few uh, citations, not so much in my field, but social psychology in a variety of fields, where... Uh, I just deliberately required the subject, instructed the subjects to make their unpreferred choice where they watched uh, a video for just a few seconds and then had to sit in the dark for another 55 seconds as opposed to their preferred choice, which was to view the cartoon for a longer period of time followed by a much shorter period in the dark. Sure, sure. So in the first half, they showed that choice for the longer reinforcement. But in the second half, uh, I instructed them, we would now like you to choose only that other side. And then they were divided into groups according to what additional instructions. So, and they were also all told there's a, a desk bell on top of the console. Anytime you want to leave, just tap on that bell and we'll come in and end the session. Uh, one group was just reminded about that. Another group was told that, plus, uh, if you leave, it won't be a problem for us because we already have enough data from the first half of the session. And uh, that result resulted in about 15% of the subjects leaving. Without saying that, like 0% would leave. Hmm. 
But the third group was the really important one. Uh, in addition to those things, the instruction said, most of our participants do leave before the experiment is over. And then half the subjects left. Because the group... Because they thought the group that most students did. Yeah, yeah. So they, there is this implicit conformity that sure. goes on that keeps them in their seats. Well, this is, you, you mentioned Milgram, just for the audience's edification, a reminder if they don't know. I believe it's Stanley Milgram, right? Is that right? His, he, the, the, the famous experiment where there was shocks, not real shocks, but the, the, the participant thought they were shocking someone to a point where their heart was going to give out. And these, what I would deem monsters, kept shocking and kept shocking. So yes. that's because of the group, because they were told to do so. The guy, was telling to. Yeah. The guy in the white coat, the yeah. doctor, yeah. right? Someone, an authority figure was telling them to do yeah, so. And right? they, they were not going merrily along in, in Milgram's experiments. Uh, they would repeatedly stop and challenge the, sure. uh, quote, uh, scientist in the, in the long white coat uh, and ask, can you look in on the gentleman? He's screaming. He's saying his heart's bothering him. Say, please continue. Yeah, please continue. Very cold. Um, and they would argue, frequently argue. Uh, they, they didn't just go merrily along, but the two-thirds of them uh, would press what they thought was the highest uh, voltage of shock, which was listed on the consoles, 450 volts. But they usually showed uh, extreme distress, mm -hmm. which made the, uh, the Milgram experiments uh, a, a target for a lot of criticism on the grounds that it was highly unethical. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the reasons that ethical standards uh, sure. were developed for... Well, look what we learned from it. Ethical yeah. or not, there, it was a, that's a vast amount of information that we, we now understand about... Mm -hmm. Or we've come to understand, maybe, we're understanding more mm -hmm. about the human condition. Yeah. Well, I saw connections between what I was doing and that. Reviewers of my articles raised objections. Said, well, first, um, when they quit in Milgram's experiment, uh, they're helping someone. Mm -hmm. So that makes your experiment totally different. Uh, when, when they quit in Milgram's study, it's pro-social behavior. When they quit in your experiment, they're just uh, escaping from the unpleasantness of the task. Well, I looked more closely into this and discovered some facts about Milgram's studies that are not well publicized. Uh, it happened to be in an article written by Philip Zimbardo, another social Stanford psychologist. Stanford prison happened, experiment. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it happened to be uh, high school buddies with, with Milgram. So he got... Really? The, yes. Wow, I, that's you heard it here first. I had yeah, no idea. Could, that's yeah. that's super interesting. Yeah, and they they both may have been influenced to go into social psychology by a very popular program at that time uh, called Candid Camera. Yeah, yeah. Where you set up these weird situations, and if your, your listeners haven't uh, checked out any of these uh, Candid Cameras, like from the nineteen. 60s especially like the, the people get on the elevator and everybody on the elevator is facing the wrong way right and these goofballs just go along with the group and turn to the side rather than facing the the normal way yeah it's when people are going into a routine situation and suddenly the laws of nature change uh people start acting in totally weird ways one that i really i don't want to get off the the subject here so much but that's what we do yeah okay <laughs> well uh, one that's so memorable to me it, it was at a, in a lunch counter. A guy was at the counter, 
and he's waiting for his meal to be uh, delivered. And out of the corner of his eye, he sees one of the his utensils, I think it was like the spoon, uh, move a little bit. Uh, he, he's not sure. He looks more closely at it. Nothing happens. <laughs> then when he looks away, it moves again a little bit. There's a guy under the counter with a, with a magnet moving it along. So then he looked again, nothing. And again, out of the corner of his eye, it moves a little bit. This time, he's, he just stares at the spoon almost like daring it. <laughs> so hit the spoon one. While he, he's looking at it, the spoon jumps uh, several inches, and he's you know startled by what he's seeing. In the meantime, the waitress who's in on this you know, walks past the uh, his location at the counter, sees that the spoon is too far from his place setting, and just uh, nonchalantly moves the spoon back. So she acts like uh, nothing is out of the ordinary. And, right. and he's like in outer space here. Um, it's typical of Canon camera. So uh, I always used to watch it. Um, and Milgram, Zimbardo both watched it. But anyway, the, the, the um, little known aspect of Milgram's studies, mm-hmm. Zimbardo once asked Milgram, did any of your participants who quit ever go and see if the the victim playing the role of a learner the confederate uh, was okay after all that screaming mm-hmm. and milgram seemed to be surprised by the question according to zimbardo and said no actually none did and in fact they never even asked the experimenter to go in and check on the learner hmm. So See, that what? seems to contradict what the journal reviewers or your article exactly. reviewers are telling you. Yeah. Uh, they weren't quitting to help the victim. They were quitting to escape the stress. That's right. Benefit themselves. Yeah. So on that It's a basis, different outlook, yeah. So it was similar to what you were doing. It, it, right. So uh, I then developed a model. I published uh, uh, a model of the Milgram paradigm uh, based on escape as mm-hmm. the motivation for disobedience yeah and that it was not a moral issue pro, pro, but anyway that got me interested in uh, moral issues mm-hmm. and I started moving as I started researching uh, psychology and, and philosophy as related to moral judgment, where it comes from, yeah. that intrigued me more and more. So, And something uh, that you focus on a lot in that research is moral ambivalence, too, which right. I think is really interesting. And before I met you, I hadn't ever heard that mm-hmm. talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know where, where that was kind yeah. of noticed for you. Yeah, that comes from rats and pigeons. Yeah? Okay, so it's all... <laughs> it's... Uh, the focus in operant conditioning is reinforcement and punishment. Mm-hmm. One way of talking about the effects of reinforcement and punishment is in terms of approach and avoidance. Reinforcement produces approach behavior. Punishment produces avoidance. Mm-hmm. And there are classic studies of uh, rats in runways where uh, they're released from a start box and... Uh, 
if they run to the other side, they reach a goal box where there is food available. However, when they get to the goal box, they also get an electric shock. Mm. So they're getting both reinforcement and punishment at the same time. It produces conflict. And so on later trials, the animals will scamper up to the goal box for the food and then back away, then approach again, then avoid. And researchers who analyzed this demonstrated uh, in groups where the rats were either reinforced or uh, shocked at that end of the runway, um, that you could measure the strength of these approach and avoidance tendencies separately. And they had different uh, characteristics. For example, the strength of the avoidance tendency rises uh, much more steeply as the subject gets closer to the goal box where it got shocked. Mm -hmm. The strength of the avoidance tendency uh, increases at a, at a lower rate. So if the animal is at the far end of the runway, the approach tendency will be higher than the avoidance tendency, and the animal will approach, will start exploring. But once it moves far enough towards the goal box, the avoidance tendency uh, will be higher than the approach tendency, and he'll move back. Mm -hmm. So it's in, the, in the field, it's, 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 and it's very widely demonstrated in, in other areas of psychology that approach and avoidance motivation are different. Avoidance is more powerful because it's uh, more protective uh, mm -hmm. for our survival. So, we can also demonstrate this technique on me because the closer that I get to graduation, <laughs> the more I want to avoid doing my work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> you, you can expect the same pattern. Wherever you're in conflict, mm -hmm. have approach and avoidance tendencies towards the same thing. It could be anything. Mm -hmm. uh, the closer you get to the goal, or to a decision, uh, the stronger your tendency will be to back off and put it off. So whatever you thought you might be doing, like it could be a, a great job, uh, pays a lot, uh, but it's in a part of the country uh, that's totally unfamiliar to you. Maybe it's a if you're from Southern California, if it involves going to a very cold environment, and you don't know anybody there, the total change in lifestyle. You may be given a week to make your decision, and early in the week, you may be uh, thinking, yeah, you're going to go. But when it comes time right, to right. actually call and say, yeah, I'll, I'll take the job, instead, you might be saying, can I have another week to, to decide? Sure. Um, so you get this vacillation, mm -hmm. um, and that's the... Uh, perspective that I have mm -hmm. when looking at moral judgment. Right. Uh, the general uh, uh, view in the field is that moral judgment is bound up with emotions. Right. Uh, it could be anger, it could be disgust, mm -hmm. it could be guilt. Usually when we make a moral judgment uh, or uh, witness behavior that seems praiseworthy or blameworthy, we react with uh, an emotion rather in addition to whatever else we might be thinking. Mm -hmm. so, so these emotions are important in terms of what judgment we make and also in terms of uh, how they guide our own behavior. Right. So individuals who lack, they call moral emotions, individuals who lack them 
um, behave totally differently and make different kinds of judgments, like psychopaths. Um, one study on psychopaths' judgments uh, is entitled something like, uh, psychopaths know the difference between right and wrong, they just don't care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. And... Uh, well, and I think I think that one of the things that's interesting about moral ambivalence, and it's kind of this idea that you can hold two contradicting mm-hmm. feelings, right? Mm-hmm. And you you use that with moral scenarios. So you allow people to read a moral scenario and then give an um, opinion about how right it is and how wrong it is. Right. And I think typically what's done is it's either wrong or right, mm-hmm. right? Um, but you give people the opportunity to kind of have that ambivalence R- right. or demonstrate ambivalent feelings. Exactly. I see it the same way as with uh, the rats in the runway. They have these separate approach and avoidance tendencies, and uh, they're tied to the reinforcement and to the punishment. And in the same way, in these uh, moral dilemmas, uh, it's not usually a question of it's all right or all wrong. There are benefits to the judgment, which would tend to create an approach tendency expressed as right. And there are costs associated with it, with the action, that, what, what you're thinking about, um, which would produce avoidance motivation and uh, link uh, to the cost aspect. And they are not equivalent. So... That's one of the issues that I've been uh, working on with a number of uh, students demonstrating the lack of equivalence between the approach and avoidance tendencies. They're not right and wrong are not bipolar opposites. They're not two sides of the same coin. So in in a complex situation, uh, it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's a matter of right and wrong. Sure. And then it's a question of how right and how wrong. And the way you see it, um, most. You find this to be the case the preponderance of the time with, with, with most choices? The, the, that it's not binary? The, the, the complex. So, like in Brittany's thesis, she, she has some straightforward uh, scenarios where. Uh, you want to, uh, yeah, you let me disc- steal the microphone yeah, from Jesse. Yeah, um, so I had two simple scenarios and one complex scenario. And the two simple scenarios, one of them involved um, hiring a rapist to rape your wife in order to basically come in and save the day. Something that's clearly wrong, right? Um, so that's an easy judgment to make. <laughs> I don't know what's happening with the face- yeah, facial expressions yeah, because that you're I, I'd like to pick up on something you said. Yeah, but, okay. but we say clearly wrong. Yeah. Um, most people would judge it as wrong. Yes. Yes. And the, the point I'd like to pick up is, is it really wrong? Yeah, yeah. We're going we'll to get to, we'll that. Get I read, to that. I read, I read, I read your your yeah, yeah. your earthquake slash terrorist attack thing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, we're definitely, we're definitely yeah. going to get there. But for the purposes of, of, well, it's it's fucking it's wrong to, to hire someone to rape your wife. But we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Okay. So. Back to the scenarios. And um, another one was smothering somebody for money. Um, And then the complex scenario was having to sacrifice somebody for um, saving other people. So it was a lifeboat scenario where you had to 
throw someone out of the lifeboat in order to save everybody on the boat, including yourself. And so that is one where that moral ambivalence comes into play because some people can think that that's both right and wrong Mm because there are benefits to doing that. And then there are also um, costs associated with doing that. So, so so we're here now. Let's, let's go into this. Um, I, I, I find, First of all, kind of summarize if you. I mean, it was. Yeah. It's. It's going to be tough to, maybe easier for you because you you wrote it and it's your your theorizing of it. But give us give us kind of the, the thirty thousand foot, elevator pitch, of of the paper of your. So this is the well some background first. So you've moved into kind of this God hypothesis oh, stuff, yes, yes. and um, just headfirst into <laughs> the atheism and theistic belief type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've published several articles in Skeptic Magazine. Yeah. And um, so yeah, we wanted to give some background on that. Okay. Well, uh, first, as it relates to moral judgment, uh, it's easy to think that when you say something is wrong, like uh, hiring someone to rape your wife, so when it's over, you can comfort her and she'll appreciate you more. That's that's the gist of that scenario. It's easy to think that it really is wrong to do that. That we react with it's revolt, revolting, it's, it's outrageous. If we saw it on the news, uh, string them up, you know, what, that kind of thing. But beyond our emotional reactions and the things that we say, is there anything objectively wrong about what the uh, the husband did in that scenario? Yes. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Because okay. he made a choice to have her harmed. She didn't have a choice in the matter. If we are sentient beings who have free will, which you might argue... Some would argue. I know Sam Harris argues it, but I I do believe that. I mean, when you get down to the to the nanosecond of the chemical reaction, to the point that you make the some would argue that we don't really have free will. But I'm an atheist, oh. and I do believe that we have free will. Okay, well that's another issue whether the, whether anything in nature is really uh, free. Sure. Because in any science, is a presumption that the processes you're studying whether whether it's helping someone across the street or raping someone, uh, that behavior is governed by laws. So in this case, psychological laws. And there's no room for a concept of free will. Brittany, have you seen in any of your uh, library research, uh, research on articles, the concept of free will being used to explain any of the results? Uh, <laughs> I think you know the answer to that. <laughs> of course, I wouldn't have asked the question. <laughs> yeah, uh, except for the field of hum- humanistic psychology, which makes no great claims to being scientific. Uh, but um, I never see the concept of free will being used to explain any of the research findings. You have an independent variable, a dependent variable. The independent variable is the cause, the dependent variable is the effect, and you have constructs that explain the connection between them, and none of those constructs is free will. So, uh, but let's say there was such a thing as a free will. Uh, How do you know that one course of action is right and the other course of action is wrong, even if we could freely choose? Well, it would be the concept of harm. 
was mm-hmm. their harm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, where did our values uh, for avoiding harming others come from? I believe you know we're we're still um, upper Paleolithic hunter gatherers, mm-hmm. and you know, two hundred fifty thousand years ago, or however long ago that we started to develop, we we acted in cooperation with one another. Yes, we're cavemen, and if I if I'm caveman one and you're caveman two and I kill you because I want your wife, yeah. well, that's a bummer for me because now the group is weaker and right. we're not going to be able to hunt as well and we might starve. And then so the cooperation became the, the rule. Right. It was, it's adaptive to sure. uh, develop uh, a sense of morality uh, where others in your group are protected. By the way, I'm still caveman one, still today. <laughs> so it's just a, a, you're saying that this uh, value uh, that says avoid harming others, at least in your group, uh, is the result of evolution. It's a it's an an adaptation because otherwise, if uh, you couldn't trust the sure. others in your group, you couldn't cooperate. Uh, on hunts, you uh, you couldn't resist infringements from by other. But groups. I understand from a philosophical point that there is right and wrong are just concepts that we've developed over time. I get that. Yeah. So in a cosmic sense, maybe maybe that's true. But from mm-hmm. a from a, a real world everyday walking around mm-hmm. regular people point of view, yeah. if I harm you yeah. just because I can because I'm bigger yeah. and younger, uh-huh. that that is. We have to, as a civilized society, to, to to work within that same caveman construct. We have to have, we have to okay. be able to label. Okay, it. well, that that's just evolutionary and social adaptation. That's sure. what what you have to do to survive. That's not getting at um, what really is right or wrong. You're justifying it in terms of what's beneficial uh, for people in general. But who's to say that that's the right? point of view well let me let me just to to, let's flip it so what if having your wife raped so you're saying that could be the right thing and not having your wife raped could be the wrong thing no what i would say it's neutral it has no moral content unless uh you have some concept of a higher power sure that would serve as the uh, the moral standard and the uh, the the object the objective moral standard. Right. In other words, Doctor Navrick is a Dennis Prager guy. Uh, 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 yeah, I agree with uh, his side of the the argument. Yeah, yes, versus Michael. Uh, but I I don't take a religious point of view. So you wouldn't be a In Dennis this- Prager guy to the fact to the point going as far as to say that. The Judeo-Christian Yahweh no, no, I'm not talking is about the objective moral no. authority. I have this uh, series of articles in the Skeptic, and then after this article that Brittany and I have coming out, mm-hmm. um, presumably in the September issue, uh, I make this case that we're discussing now, that in the absence of some kind of construct that represents intention in nature uh there can be no objective right or wrong 
Uh, it goes back to an argument from David Hume. It's known as the Izzot problem. Mm -hmm. And what he argued was that describing nature um, is one thing. Uh, prescribing behaviors is another thing. Uh, it's one thing to say how something is. It's something very different to say how something ought to be. It's, it's known as the Izzot problem. So going, let, let's bring in the, the earthquake scenario that, yeah, that you yeah. wrote about. Yeah. That there's this small Italian village in yeah, 2004, yeah. 2006, mm. and a six-point whatever earthquake decimates this right. small, historic little village. Yeah. And that is an is. And it would be ridiculous for anyone to assert, well, earthquakes ought not happen because it's right. nature. Yeah, it, no, they, no, they no one are. is outraged. They you, do you, you, you feel bad for the people, and sure. but no one takes expresses any outrage against nature. Mother Nature always gets a pass. But then, in the second paragraph, you talk about a a collaborative terrorist attack upon a at some uh, town. Yeah, same town. Like same oh, town. same town. Okay, same towns. and and people are outraged because that is a, a moral failing. It is wrong to do that. Yeah, and I, I, I make it really graphic. I was a literature major. Right, right. No, and, it, and the thing about the scenarios uh, really appeals to me, I think, because it allows me to create uh, some little short stories there and make them graphic. So like in this article that should, should be out in Skeptic in mm -hmm. September. Oh, am I September, reading the sneak preview? Is that what I'm yeah, reading? Yeah. That is correct. Yeah, so that, that's okay. Uh, it... Uh, it makes the case for this and it's a fairly short article but to make it even more outrageous i put in that after the terrorists set off these massive explosions they kill uh survivors who are crawling out from the rubble mm -hmm. so just reading that makes your yeah, it get, gets to you. It, it achieves its objective. It achieves its objective. Yeah. Outrageous, you know. And but let's be objective. Let's be scientists here. Um, can there be any difference in moral content between the actions of the terrorists and the movements of the Earth? These tectonic movements of plates that cause the earthquake and produce the same result. Um, well, I would say yes. Obviously, I would yeah. say yes. Why is that? Because there's choice in the matter. Oh, free choice. Free or do you believe that the terrorists don't have a, it's just a chemical reaction that makes them kill and then further uh, kill the wounded as they're trying to survive? Uh, well, first, the idea of a, of a free choice is kind of a supernatural idea that kind of sets us apart from other creatures. Would you say that well, lions and tigers, would you say that lions have a free will? No, but they also they're not they're not to the level of consciousness that we are. Would you say that they are? Well, they like have a dog. It's walking around. A dog is not gonna. It's because because of conditioning. It, it it doesn't have the same level of consciousness and awareness that we do. Well, it can hear better than we do. It can well, smell better not, than we do. It, it, that's uh, not consciousness. Well, you don't think they've they... adapted maybe maybe in a greater ability to smell and hear because of a survival because they don't have the gray matter they mm -hmm. don't have the ability or the the awareness the consciousness that we have so we haven't had to 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 uh, evolve to the point of having that 
I'm interested to hear kind of your explanation in terms of um, equate. Are we, are we getting in the weeds? Equating <laughs> equating the earthquake to the terrorist act. Yeah. So that if you're looking at behavior, human behavior, in an objective scientific way, then there's no fundamental difference between human behavior and chimpanzee behavior and rat behavior and pigeon behavior. That's the way uh, all the fields of uh, psychology look at behavior, that it, it um, is explainable in terms of principles, in terms of laws. And the concept of a free will is never brought in. To, to bring it in, in the case of human behavior and to exclude it from other animals, uh, kind of puts us in a supernatural uh, dimension. But that's a, a really, I think, a side issue. Let's say that, yes, people do have a free will. Who is to say that one course of action is the correct one to freely choose and the other course of action is the wrong one to freely choose? I I think I would come down on the kind of the Sam Harris take from the moral landscape where it's the ultimate of suffering or the ultimate well-being or however he phrased it. it's been years since I've read the book but um and if if you are contributing to suffering then that's it just seems it just seems because that's your uh, evolutionary reaction that's the harm in the moral foundations theory that's just one of five categories at least five the harm care category mm -hmm. uh it uh it violates that category uh of avoiding unnecessary harm to others and when we see that kind of behavior occur we react with disgust and outrage but these are just emotional, predictable reactions, uh, no, no different from any others. The fact that you have the emotion does not make that offensive action objectively wrong. It, if we see things for what they are, the is, mm -hmm. uh, that's all that happened. You saw outrageous behavior. You reacted with outrage and disgust. You said certain things about it, and that's all there is. Well, I think in your earthquake versus terrorism scenario <laughs> that, um, you know, the earthquake, we're, we're familiar with earthquakes, that we know that they happen just at random. We've we've learned that. We've familiarized ourselves with the way that they happen. We, sure. can't, we can't predict them. There's no way to predict them, right? They try and they fail. Um, with terrorism we've been able to figure out why there are terrorists, right? People become indoctrinated by jihadists. They um, receive this religious indoctrination. Because of their belief in this supernatural mm -hmm. God. A belief. Belief. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so through these, these ideas that they're indoctrinated with, they make these decisions because they believe that it will bring them something, right? They're, they believe they're doing something. They have a duty to do something. Mm -hmm. So in reading that terrorism scenario, I wasn't confused by their actions, yeah. right? I just thought, oh, this is what terrorists do. They kill people, right? Um, 
So I don't know where I'm going with this. Well, you're, well what you're doing is making my case. I think you're you're giving a scientific explanation. You're listing various factors that made it more likely they would carry out these terrorist acts. That's cause and effect. But I still believe it. It's wrong, and and I don't believe the the Mother Earth is wrong yeah. for killing everybody in an earthquake. And Sam Harris will agree with you, and Michael Shermer will agree with you. Well, let's. But my argument is those are subjective preferences. You're highlighting. Uh, those reactions you have, which can be explained in terms of evolutionary history and socialization and so on. Uh, so can I, can you I never read really get beyond is. Can, can I read a sentence from this? Yeah. From your what you wrote? Yeah. Um, moral values related to the vi binding foundations, especially the purity sanctity foundations that underlie religious practices yeah. would provide additional advantages. Yeah. And through group selection... Yeah. The genes that created a disposition toward acquiring the binding values would occur more frequently in yeah. the overall population. Yeah. So would you assert then, to, to take this further, that maybe terrorists are genetically different because no. they haven't? No, they're, they're in cultures that uh, highlight what uh, Jonathan Haidt referred to as the binding foundations. So he argues that there are two broad classes, uh, and, and, and Brittany goes into, into this and applies this in her thesis, sure. that, and in the article that we'll, we'll be developing on it, but, and it's, uh, in, the, in the upcoming article as well. Um, but it's uh, a matter of culture as to which categories of moral concerns uh, an individual prioritizes. The individualizing foundations involve caring for others, the harm care, being fair to others. Fairness uh, and reciprocity. Fairness, reciprocity. And then there are the binding foundations that emphasize uh, loyalty to the group. So and, and respect for authority. Respect and then purity. for authority. And very important among those is uh, the purity sanctity mm -hmm. and the, uh, the importance of some sense of the deity, uh, some sense of obligation to a higher power. Um, these the values are universal, according to Hayden, research that supports it, but cultures and individuals differ in terms of what they prioritize. So based on their uh, socialization and uh, cultural context, a belief system, they moved in that direction. There are many other, sure. of course, an expression of aggression and all, all this that relieves them of guilt and so on. But we're still not getting beyond the is. The, you have this is-ought split. Uh, what I argue is without assuming there's some kind of higher power, uh, no human action is right or wrong it just is i i could uh i wouldn't say i'm fully persuaded but i'm more persuaded than when we shut the door in here um and like i said earlier I, I do believe that morality is ultimately just a construct yeah. and that so maybe right and wrong is just a construct but in order to have a functioning cooperative society 
Well, that's a, an you ease. Have to. So, that, that's, so are you uh, arguing? It's just an evolutionary adaptation. So when if something uh, tickles our nose, we sneeze. We clear our nose. If something gets into our lungs, we we cough. Clear our lungs. Um, if women it promotes walk around promotes with their survival. Heads we kill. Uh, who's we? I mean, it, it, who, <laughs> if uh, you're in a culture that places extreme value on conformity to binding values and have a belief in a monitoring God, um, depending on one's beliefs, that may seem the appropriate course of action. Um, You wouldn't do it here but you would do it in other places. So would you say they're wrong and we're right? Of course I would say that. Even the people with whom they live believe it's wrong. Yeah, and how are you going to prove faction. that? How are you going to prove that? Again, going back to where the harm. Because they're not benefiting even 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 in their earthly form, you know, they believe that they're going to move on to some celestial transcendental uh, supernatural reward some areas of heaven or whatever um but yeah you said they're not benefiting but they are are outweigh they they are benefiting it makes it a more cohesive society they it 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 enforces conformity so that in conflicts with other cultures they'll hang together It's, it's likely they'll hang together better that's how these dispositions to enforce conformity, to obedience and loyalty, and especially a sense of being monitored uh, by the higher being, even if uh, your other uh, other members of the group are not around, uh, how those groups came to predominate, uh, how those genes uh, became so widespread. Those groups uh, where those genes were well represented did better in competition and conflict with groups where they were absent. So, so something that I'm interested in, and I just had this thought. Um, See, that was an is, not an ought. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you believe that... Um, Let's say a man living in Saudi Arabia yeah. who's very a faithful believer yeah. and um, has a daughter that he doesn't allow to drive or leave the house. Um, does he have a better grasp on objective morality and what's right um, no. versus an atheist? No, uh, he he has religious beliefs. Those religious beliefs are themselves an is. That's all they are is an is. What I've um, uh, argued it, it, this would be in a later. Paper. Oh, I, no, I have the, the foundation for it in uh, the previous four articles that are in Skeptic. The God Construct. If you put my name, you know, Navrick in Google and God Construct, you'll you'll see all these listed. And there are a lot of we'll, we'll put a link blo- in the blo- show notes. Blo- a lot of blog comments, and I answer a number of those. It's uh, it's been quite the controversy. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's a construct, scientific construct. It's testable. And it refers to uh, a, a, a non-material, willful influence on one part of nature, which makes it testable. And that's the living part. And the evidence for it is that despite 
the best efforts of chemists for decades, it has not been possible to create uh, a living cell out sure. of non-living materials. Yeah, I think we're getting close, though. Okay, I would say that if you, it's called abiogenesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if there were a, 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 a gamble set up by Las Vegas boogies, mm-hmm. uh, betting on whether they would come up with a living cell and accepted by a, a, a respected journal uh, in the next year. You bet against it, you won't lose money. If it's over the next five years, if you bet against it, abiogenesis, you won't lose any money. Uh, Ten years, you won't lose any money. I don't know. I could be wrong. They could come out. I'm not saying I have um, a corner on the truth or anything. What I'm doing... No, that's my job. (laughs) Yeah. And I, and, uh, I would take the the point of view of the title of your podcast. Uh, I doubt it. I'm, yeah. ske- I'm skeptical. Yeah. Um, it's um, if you read uh, Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, there's a section in there where he said that he was surprised that the chemist hadn't achieved this abiogenesis at that writing. Mm-hmm. So that was maybe eight years ago or more. Sure, sure. Um, so what is he now? Is he even more surprised? Uh, or is, he, is he more surprised? Is he, is he, so it'd be interesting to find out. Are you even more surprised now that they haven't come out, with uh, a, come up with a living cell? Dawkins but, is too busy being a dick on Twitter, so he's he's probably not so surprised. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> we, uh, Brittany and I do a good job on him in this upcoming issue. Uh, but it's... Um, there are other, look at other evidence. Uh, they've been listening, radio astronomers have been listening for signals from distant worlds. Uh, they came up, have come up empty. Uh, but SETI and, and radio astronomers have been searching um, in what effectively is like the, a five-gallon bucket, listening to a, the, 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 the space of a five-gallon bucket inside the ocean. It's That's... I think through through the Drake equation and so many others that astrophysicists and noted scientists and, and cosmologists mm-hmm. believe that there are there is life out there just based on yeah they believe the vastness it. of the they, universe they believe it now I hope they're skeptical about their beliefs that's the that's the problem I see in in articles from those fields that sure. I read where they never even entertain the possibility that we're that it. there could be we're it. So now, okay, so you have that problem with the signals from space, and they're developing other strategies. But what about evidence for um, life on other worlds, planets, moons? They're they're investigating. They're frequently coming out with uh, claims that they've discovered another habitable moon. And sure. Habitable, habitable is very is not anything like inhabited. Mm-hmm. But That's it, true. It, it's great. So now, let's say they investigate, the, they get the robots uh, onto these worlds, and nothing. Uh, we have some pretty good evidence on Mars from these Viking landers, and that evidence is uh, speculative. Uh, the authors of that, that research, <clears throat> the principal investigators came out with a, an article, uh, I think within the last year, um, kind of on the anniversary uh, of the landing of the Vikings, and they tried to make a case that they, in fact, found evidence for 
living cells on Mars. Mm-hmm. When I looked more closely at that article, I saw contradictions. Are you talking about recently or back when Clinton was president? Le- no, they, no, they came out within the last year. Yeah. Uh, Levin, I think is one name, um, and Strat. I don't recall the names um, offhand. I think Levin was the first author. Uh, trying to, he reanalyzed the data from the Viking landers to say that it was really st- stronger evidence than initially believed. But within the article itself, uh, there are contradictions. Uh, he says it's uh, strong evidence in the abstract, but further down, you see that it rests on speculation. But in any case, uh, there's no consensus that, sure. that uh, life, any evidence for life has been found on Mars. And to me, even more compelling than life on other worlds is life on this world. There's no evidence that life started more than once on this world. There's a pattern here. That's, a, that's, that's an interesting point I've never, I've never considered, that it happened one time and then never went away. Yeah. That, that's interesting. Okay, and suppose now year after year it's the same story. No uh, cells living cells from non-living matter, no signals from space, no life found on other worlds, no evidence for an additional genesis, genesis event on Earth. Every year it comes up empty. Now, I, I ask you and also your listeners, would you consider that good news or bad news? Well, it depends upon what first contact would be like. Well, it's, uh, there's no, there's nothing. It's, everything comes up empty. Whatever level of analysis uh, you look at, it could... I would it say could, that's an is. Yeah, is it, it's an is. It's no, it's no, neither no. good nor bad. That's just what no, it is. No, I would say it's wonderful. It's wonderful news for humanity. Why? Because it implies that life started just once. That life on Earth is uh, the result of some inexplicable genesis event Hmm. that is consistent with uh, a supernatural origin. I I don't like using the word supernatural because of the connotations of ghosts and goblins. I often use the term non-material. That the way I would put it is is the result of a willful non-material influence. A willful non-material influence. influence. Yeah, uh, okay. it's uh, a, a bare bone. Yeah, it's a, a god construct. It's um, so, but you would a min- I call it a minimalist construct. Would you? So you're asserting, or I'm probably misinterpreting you, but. Um, that the lack of evidence up to this point, when we are in our infancy scientifically, yeah. we are really just days removed from the cave, being cavemen. We're just figuring shit out it, scientifically. We know a lot about cells. I, I, I'm, ta- I'm the, talking about like from evidence and getting being able to to reach you know beyond our planet. I mean, you know, f- fifty years ago. What's this changed? iPhone was would have been right. magic. I and mean, what's changed over fifty years? The technology's changed, but the results are the same. There's nothing. They keep coming up empty. If, if there was a way to bet, uh, uh, but what I'm saying is, I, lack, lack of evidence up to this point isn't 
evidence of, of Correct. nothing. Correct. Uh, it, it's what I called evidence of absence. And there's no proof. I mean, that tomorrow it could all change. A huge announcement. But it hasn't. I published that original God's Construct article two years ago, and and it's it's worrisome. It was worrisome then, and uh, I had no idea if the next day, the next month, uh, they come up with the announcement. So you're it's, a gambler. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, I'm willing to take the risk. Sure. Uh, I don't. I, I I accept that it's testable and falsifiable, but that's. Great, that makes it a scientific construct. Now, what about the alternative that life had a material origin? Is there any way to falsify that point of view? How could we disprove that life had uh, a material origin? I don't think you can disprove it. Correct. But, that, make, but that doesn't prove it. Di being yeah. uh, being una an inability to disprove it doesn't doesn't make it so yeah if if uh sci or, or even more likely mm -hmm. it's just what makes a theory scientific is that it's falsifiable so okay they can't falsify it definitely you can't say that you can definitely falsify a material origin of life but what you can do is uh point to evidence for the absence of a material origin of life uh no one piece of evidence against it is decisive. There'll never be de decisive, but there will be an accumulation of evidence. So eventually, you can make a pretty good case that life had a non-material origin, but it can't be uh, proven that way. Sure. Um, so what would be the... If it, since it's, you can't prove it one way or another, you should look for evidence of absence uh, that points you in one direction or the other. One of the blog comments that came up in response to my original God's Construct article, uh, I, I remembered and I address in another article I'm working on that I'll send to skeptics, the moral connection mm -hmm. to all this. So what's the point of all this? The comment was, okay, uh, technically uh, it's possible that life had uh, a willed supernatural origin. Uh, what's gained by that? What, what is the value added, the commenter mm -hmm. added? What's gained? The value added is objective moral values because now you have a basis for breaking out of the isot problem. You add a construct of intention before the first living cell. Sure. So are you are you just playing the odds here? What are if you're if you were to label yourself? Are you yeah. would you so are, are you are you just playing the odds? You're kind of a deist. Okay. Yeah, we can, can, this we, is when the article comes the, in. Yeah. The, we uh, <laughs> we have a categor a categorical uh, scale. Um, it goes from Gnostic atheist to agnostic atheist to non-believer, uh, uncommitted, to agnostic theist to Gnostic theist. And mm -hmm. at the extremes, the the Gnostic atheist, the Gnostic theist, uh, the thinking is doctrinaire, dogmatic, certain, certain, mm -hmm. like the 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 the. the, the 
the argument that their belief is fact. Which is can't be. Which I have which I have asserted on the show many times is ridiculous because you can't we at this point we cannot know. So being a dogmatic atheist is just as ridiculous to me as being a dogmatic Christian because yeah, nobody goddamn knows. Or nobody theist. knows. Any, any, uh, well, religion, yeah, for or my a... purposes, I grew up in Christianity, so that's mm-hmm. my that's my yardstick that I beat over the head of people so who So if we're are. being skeptical, <laughs> then we use that uh, next row, sure. the, the agnostic... Which is where uh, I find myself. Agnostic atheist. Yes. So where I would find myself is agnostic theist. Hmm. And it's based on not faith. Uh, it could be a little intuition in the background, uh, but basically on uh, interpretation of evidence. And in this case, it's evidence of absence. Now, that may be objectionable uh, to many people. Um, Trust evi- me, it is. <laughs> evi- evi- but let, let's, let's see how consistent uh, they would be. Uh, Victor Stenger, uh, mm-hmm. a physicist, atheist, has written many books uh, uh, claiming that there is no God. Basically, he takes issue you with... You mentioned him in your third paragraph, I believe. Yes, some, yeah, in the original, the God construct one. Uh, he says that um, the evidence is that there is no God. Now, one of the topics... He talks about in his book, God, the Failed Hypothesis, is that the evidence is prayer does not work. And the, the best test is evidence that it works for people who don't, who are sick, severely ill, and don't know they're being prayed for. Because if they know they're being prayed for, it actually, it increases, it actually, the other, it backfires. They, they tend to die earlier. Wow. They, they feel, oh, it's really that bad? They're all praying for me? I guess it's over. What's the point? <laughs> Whereas if you, you pray for yourself, you're severely ill, you pray for yourself, there you get a placebo yeah, yeah. effect. And uh, It's actually really fascinating, the intercessory prayer research. I, who would have thought that knowing someone's praying for you would actually not, <laughs> not be helpful at all? Yeah, yeah backfires. <laughs> so if you pray for someone, don't tell them. God's a bummer. So well, let me but ask wait, you but this. Let me make no, this. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so when uh, they look at evidence for improvement in people who are being prayed for and don't know it, uh, they find no evidence that it works. Now, how should we interpret that? Uh, the evidence has come up negative for the e- efficacy of prayer for mm-hmm. people who don't know they're being prayed for. Does that convince you that those prayers don't work? Um. Well, yeah, that those prayers don't work, but then I think that that would be an argument for deism over theism. Well, well why not? It, why isn't it the same issue with evidence against a material origin of, of life? Uh, you could always say, well, those prayers didn't work, but maybe the next prayer will work. Maybe there's a better way uh, to say a prayer. Well, maybe it I, works. Because I think uh, one has a reasonable foundation that. We understand the numbers. We've run the numbers. We know how many how many star systems. Are, you know, there's a there's a hundred billion or two hundred billion uh, galaxies with a hundred billion to two hundred billion star systems in them. Uh, the the chances are, you know, 
overwhelming that there's something out there. Well, only a few studies have been done showing that these attempts to uh, to improve people's condition by saying prayers for them uh, were ineffective. It's not like billions of times. Right. Well, you asked the question, does it convince you? Yeah. Right. And so the right answer is no, <laughs> because it shouldn't convince you of that. However, it is evidence for leaning toward one side, kind of like how you're an yes. agnostic theist. Exactly. Jesse's an agnostic atheist. Yes. And so it does move you in one direction yes. based on the evidence. Yes. And just on that same base, so it, would it move you in that direction against the efficacy of prayer? Would you say it moves you? That uh, the, the evidence that, that, pra work? that prayers don't evidence is that prayers don't work. I would say yes. It moves you in that direction. Right, that would. Well, but also, but also, and this wouldn't. This is just anecdotal. But all of the hundreds and thousands of prayers that I've offered up to the to Yahweh when I was a Christian also mm -hmm. came back with a with a dial bzz, mm -hmm. the dial tone there was no you know wasn't a busy signal mm -hmm. there was no nothing there okay it's what we call anecdotal evidence right so, i know. You know we're gonna stick with the, the scientific right. stuff <laughs> sure. so so if uh, we must uh, <laughs> why should it be any different when attempts are made to create a living cell and those attempts fail, as they have repeatedly for, for decades. Uh, it doesn't prove anything. Well, the reason, but why wouldn't that tilt you in the direction that maybe life has a non had a non material origin? Well, the reason I was getting to the deist thing is because a lot of people would believe that there's this 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 being out there that created everything mm -hmm. with it, hit it with his magic wand, and then stepped away and just let it do its thing. So there wouldn't be anything to pray to in that aspect because a non-intervening deity wouldn't be accepting prayers. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and, and you can't disprove it. Uh, that's the you can't falsify it. If it's a deist, it doesn't interact with nature. You don't have a handle on it. You don't have a way of testing its influence. But a theistic influence can be tested to if this influence interacts with nature we we can get a handle on it and so far the evidence is that uh it interacts with one part of nature the part that we call alive uh what whatever whatever what evidence are you speaking about? The evidence of absence for abiogenesis, that you can create a living cell from non-living materials, whether it, you create it from scratch or from a dead cell, you repair the dead cell, bring it back to life. One way or another, take something that's not alive and make it alive. That settles the issue. Hmm. So, again... And, you know, I, this I, because I believe that we are making, you know, uh, strides and progress yeah, scientifically yeah. toward that. Um, and just because we haven't doesn't it doesn't dissuade me. OK, well, what ha if, if ten, another 10 years go by and they still haven't made a living cell, would that affect your views at all? Would you have as much confidence in abiogenesis? Oddly enough, I'd probably have more confidence that it's getting ready to happen. Yeah, and maybe, maybe you know, maybe that's just that's just my and, programming. And, and if twenty years go by, 
it's it, probably I would equate it to when I was a, a Christian and believed that yeah. at any moment you're, you're a true believer. Jesus was getting ready to come back. Yeah, just you're any a, mo- so ten years later. Yeah. Oh, I'm even more confident it's because that, it's been yeah, ten more yeah, years. Yeah, right. That, <laughs> is, the closer he gets to the goal, the more he approaches. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I don't have yeah, any avoidance in this. Like, one. That's gambler's uh, fallacy there. But, but but what it really is, it's the do uh, theory. What you're We're really, due. what you're, what do for a breakthrough? What you're really expressing is. Um, a religious belief. There's no way wah, to disprove wah. your religious belief. Um, but your your religion now is the absence of a god. I would say that. Um, I would say. Well, I would ask you: Are you open to the possibility that there could be something found? Yeah, I, uh, I have uh, the popular science. Uh, blog on my kindle and i um i check it uh every day or every weekday when they update it for a bulletin sure yeah they, it happened nothing year after year nothing yeah. it comes up empty but listen i maybe i should have been more i mean my my bread and butter is politics. That's really what the show is about, not this kind of stuff. But we do these bonus episodes because I, I find this fascinating. So maybe I should have done a little bit more research that, into this particular aspect of uh, creating life. But, but so, that, so I'm outmatched. I mean, I'm outmatched anyway because you're a smart guy and I'm, oh, that, I'm uh, Jesse Dahlem. <laughs> anybody can come up with a great insight at any time. You have to keep your ears open uh, listen, anything I, I, anyone I'm, says. I am super fascinated by this. I'm I'm sure the audience is going to have a, a million questions. Um, and, you know, we'll just drop the phone number now, not have to do it in, in post. But 657-464-7609. Of course, you can always email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. If you have questions for Dr. Navrick, <laughs> we might have to have a part two and mm, uh, drop be- some voicemails and we could have him answer questions Directly to the voicemails. I think that would be yeah, awesome. That sounds like a great idea. Yeah, 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 that would be great. So let's let's uh, we'll we'll pause this and we'll have this be part one. Yeah. <laughs> Pending questions for Doctor Navrick. Yeah, we appreciate you having us into your office. I'm uh, I got a lot of shit to go look up and read about. Well, I, I appreciate having this opportunity to uh, discuss these issues. Yeah, listen, the- all this is fascinating. I mean, I'm made better by being connected to Brittany Page. So it is, uh, all this is a, an entirely different world for me. And I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And again, you know, look, I'm, while I certainly appear and come across as more dogmatic, it is, um, I'm open to anything. I just think, and maybe it's because of my programming and my ardent opposition to the idea that there's a God. Um, I'm, so would you put yourself in the Gnostic atheist category no, no, or I'm the agnostic? I am agnostic because I don't believe that you can know. There, there's no at this given what we know, you just can't you can't make a de- uh, declarative statement either way. Well, and in the article that's coming out in June, mm-hmm. uh, the three the three shades of atheism, we actually give some responses that we received from the atheists who are certain, and the responses that they gave were fascinating, <laughs> um, surprising, and 
for you, Jesse, you were surprised by some of them too, in yeah. terms of how certain they were in their yeah. beliefs, um, how dogmatic they were, because typically atheists are very critical of religious people for that reason, right? They're dogmatic, they won't listen, they're not open, but then we found some responses from atheists saying, hey, can you differentiate between atheism and agnosticism? Why did you choose atheist over agnostic? And there were responses like, I know there's no God. Yeah. I'm certain yeah. that there is not a God, right? Yeah. That just comes across. I'm more disappointed in that because these are my countrymen, you know, and I, I, I don't want to be in the in group with a bunch of dumb guys. I want to be the only dumb guy. And it but that kind of bums me out. But because it is, it's it's the it's the other side of the coin to the theists that we we butt up against, you know, through Facebook discussions and everything else. Anyway, this could go on forever and ever. Seriously, we really appreciate the hospitality having us into your awesome office with the countless just it is the the walls are just it's a tapestry a collage of photos of your travels and you like southeast asia southeast asia i'm focused now on uh europe yeah uh, and it's awesome um, so we appreciate it thank you very much sure thank you thank you <laughs> All right. Well, Brittany, here we are back after the interview. Instantly back from Cal State Fullerton. It's amazing. <laughs> and uh, I really would like the audience to sound off. If you have questions, I'd love to do a part two, except this time we'll get him in studio so we don't have to do the, the on-scene bullshit where it can be quality right here in the studio. And if you have questions for him, again... I'll drop the number one more time, 657-464-7609. Of course, you can always email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com and also emails because if we get him here in studio, he will just answer voicemails directly and uh, it's very interesting. I think that the, we could really get a, a, very, uh, a great debate going here and maybe e include maybe even a, a fourth party. Who knows? So we'd love to hear from you. Thank you guys for your support, for your loyalty, or your listenership. We appreciate it very much. And we will we'll see you next time. For Brittany Page, I am Jesse Dollimore, and this has been I Doubt It. <laughs>